Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 23 of the podcast. My name is David Noe. As always, I'm joined here in our studios with my good friend, Dr. Jeff Winkle. How's it going, Jeff? I'm a little chilly today, but I'm doing all right. We've got a cold front coming in here in uh, West Michigan, don't an, we? An Arctic blast is yes. what we're calling it. Yes. A polar creep, something like that. <laughs> There's another word for it. I don't know. But... <laughs> <laughs> the uh, some kind of vortex, I believe, I think. moving vortex in. Vortex yeah. is a good Latin word. It is. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to come on us, and it's going to chill us to the bone. That's what I understand. Yeah, and I'm already, I'm already cold in anticipation mm. of it. Yeah. But it's not going to prevent us from giving a shout out today, is it? Not at all. So the shout out today goes out to Joe Spire of Cincinnati, Ohio, who is uh, one of your Moss Greek students. Yes, Joe is uh, quite dedicated to learning Greek and he's doing really well. He submits assignments all the time. All the time. In fact, I got one this morning. <laughs> From Joe. From Joe. Well, you don't get a shout out if you're not a diligent student. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks to Joe for listening. And you have our opening quote for today. I do. This is from the late Sir Hugh Lloyd-Jones from his work, The Justice of Zeus. He was knighted. Yes. He yeah. was knighted. Yes. For his, uh, his work in the classics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you write brilliant prose like this and you advance the cause of the study of classics, you get a knighthood. Not bad. Not bad. So this was 1971, The Justice of Zeus. And he says, quote, the main theological difference between the epics, the Iliad and Odyssey, lies in the Odyssey's rejection of the belief that a god may suggest wicked or foolish as well as good or wise actions to the minds of men. But since in the Iliad the human agent must always be held fully responsible for his action, even though a god has caused him to perform it, the Odyssean modification of the doctrine exemplified in the Iliad is of strictly limited significance. That's some heavy prose right That there. is. That's pretty sublime, I yeah. would say. And it leaves me a little off balance, I gotta say. Okay. Would you, are you able, willing to unpack that a little I'll bit? I'll do what I can. Okay. So his point here is that the Iliad and Odyssey, though they may flow from the pen of the same poet, they have a theological difference, and one that's important to our understanding of the epics as a whole. And he says the main difference is that in the Iliad, the gods can suggest wicked or foolish ideas to the human characters, as well as good and wise actions. The Odyssey, that's not the case. In the Odyssey, the gods have become more moral, and they only suggest or uh, insinuate into the minds of the heroes, the men and women, things that are good and salutary, things that are wise and are going to help them thrive. Uh, unlike the Iliad, where any kind of crazy idea hmm. can be presented to the characters by the gods and goddesses. But then the second part, where he uses words like modification, doctrine, exemplified, strictly limited, this just means that in both epics, this is what they have in common, in both epics, no matter where the idea or the suggestion came from, the characters have to live with the consequences of them. Yeah. Fully responsible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I, I, uh, maybe this isn't the place to kind of get off on a tangent, but um, you know, it, it'd be interesting to explore how that works with what we were talking about in the in last episode about how the gods are much less present yes. in the Odyssey. And, and so you have the Iliad, you know, the gods are there all the time. They're present, they're involved in the battle. And we were talking last time about how Zeus even, at you know, the, 
the second page of Lombardo's translation, he's shoving humans away because right. he's, he's had it with them. So right. I, I kind of wonder how that how that works. I think it's absolutely central to the proper interpretation of it. And it reminds me of a comment that was made a long, to me a long time ago when I was in graduate school by a famous uh, Homer scholar, Jenny Strauss Clay. And uh, she said, a lot of people wonder, what's the Iliad about? She said, it's a really foolish question because... Homer tells you in the first 15 lines, he hmm. says, the will of Zeus was fulfilled. Ah. So that's it. The, the Iliad is about the fulfillment of Zeus's will. Now, the Odyssey is a little bit different because like we were just saying, the immortal characters, the divine, they recede into the background, but they're still suggesting things to the characters. And a person like Odysseus has to live with all of the consequences yeah. of his actions. So and in some ways you could say in the Odyssey... Um, the human beings are are much more morally culpable. Absolutely, they're much more responsible for the actions because uh, while the gods, like you say, the gods are insinuating things, it's not this you know fully present in your face kind of quality that we see in the Iliad. I think part of the way to understand that though is to notice the gap between a modern contemporary sensibility, the thought that you and I might have raised in our particular context, and the way the ancients viewed things. Right. In other words. The ancients didn't seem to have a problem with the notion that a god can be the source of a particular action and the human being still fully responsible for it. Right. A lot of my students uh, have a huge problem with for that. For sure. Yeah. And that's what makes the Odyssey more modern and approachable, because there's a, a sharper delineation between divine and mortal intention. Right. So we're kind of back to that, that first word again, Andra. This that's is about, right. It's not really about the gods, it's about the man. Right. Yeah. So that's what we're giving our listeners today, isn't it? That's right. In this episode, they can get general summaries of the Odyssey pretty much anywhere. Right. Spark Notes, Wikipedia, and so on and so forth. We're going to try to give them an interpretive framework, how to understand these poems. Is that right? I think that's right. I mean, it's just the fact that we're zeroing in on book four in a way that it just isn't usually done. I think that's kind of a, a testament to kind of the above and beyond that we're doing here. So let's get right into it then, Jeff. And we're going to start with... A quick review and summary of books two and three. Yeah. Last time, we spent the whole episode really on book one, mm-hmm. setting the stage, talking about the proemium, the invocation of the muse, all of that kind of stuff. And now we're going to bypass books two and three. Of course, they're interesting. We just really don't have time to cover them. We we're don't. go right on to book four. But we got to tell people, we have to tell you, dear listener, what's in those books, two and three, because we don't want to uh, strand you, so to speak. Uh, without an or. That's right. So as we were talking last week, the first four books are really focused on Telemachus. It's it's his story that gets going here, and Telemachus's problem of uh, really starting to step into his his father's shoes, starting to take responsibility for uh, for himself and to become a, a leader like his father. And so in book one, Telemachus finally stands up to the suitors in a way that shocks the suitors and shocks even his own mother. And Athena comes down in disguise to uh, begin to kind of push that little fledgling out of the nest. He's got to become a captain like his father did. He's got to leave the island. Get him out from behind his mother's apron strings. Exactly right. As you memorably said last week. Yes. And so Athena, gray-eyed Glaucopus Athena, appears as a mentor, and she is the close friend and companion in disguise of Telemachus and gets him launched on his coming-of-age story. Right. I don't think Homer says it explicitly, but this is, uh, Telemachus has never left the island. Um, I mean, do you get that? I don't think there's any traditions about Telemachus 
I've um, never heard anything like that. No. no. And I think he's, that's, he's stranded on this island of Ithaca. It's his whole world. It's the only right. world that he's known. The northwest coast off the Peloponnese. Yes. And he must have often thought, right, my dad's gone mm-hmm. far away and I'm stuck here on this island. Right. This is a big step. Right. I think we also mentioned it last week, but I think it's, it's worth uh, reiterating is, of course, Athena knows exactly where Odysseus is. Right. But he's on Ogygia. He's with Calypso. And Athena could very easily have just simply told Telemachus uh, that information and uh, to wait. Uh, but she realizes that Telemachus has to have his own journey. Right. Um, and so by going and, and looking for and seeking this information himself, he's going to uh, start to mature into the man that his father needs him to be at the end of the story. Do you remember your first day of high school? I do remember my first day of high school. What was it like? Be- and I asked the question, uh, and I'm not letting you answer, but I asked the question <laughs> because he- here's a really interesting part of the epic. Telemachus is for the first time taking initiative. He's going to his first day of ninth grade or something like yeah. that. He's going on his first date. Uh, he's leaving for college, right? Odysseus has been through all of that. He's trying to get back. And their stories are going to intersect, right, in about book 14, I think, at the hut of Eumaeus. Right. Uh, but yet this is a really fraught moment. So what was the first day of high school like for you, Wayne? It was terrifying. Was it? I remember my one main... Uh, memory is I was really worried about what I was wearing. Yes, of course. Right. So my high school was, I mean, there was lots of people from my middle school that were going on that, of course, I knew, but there were all these other feeder schools. So there was dozens of people that I had never met before. You want to make a good impression. Right. And they could I, be monstrous, right? Could be monstrous. They could have one eye. They, they could be, uh, you know, the kind of people that eat... Um, Mind warping flowers. There's exactly all kinds right. of possibilities, right? It's, it, but like, like you were saying, it's it's a threshold moment, right? right. So it's, it's, an, it's once you cross it, there's no crossing it back. And so mm-hmm. I was really, I, th- I remember I was wearing some sort of probably really horrible plaid shirt <laughs> that I agonized over. Do you remember your first day? Uh, well, I started high school in eighth grade. Oh, our here school, we here we go. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not about being uh, prodigious. It was about the fact that. Um, they lumped the eighth graders together with the high schoolers. Oh, really? Which made us feel even more rootless, that's, you might say. That's cruel. It was because of uh, the small school district in which I grew up, public okay. school. So eighth grade is in the high school, and they try to keep us separate but unequal was kind of what they were <laughs> going for, and they succeeded. Uh, and I was terrified also. Yeah. But I have a keen uh, memory of thinking about where can I find some upperclassman ally, right? Uh, guy or gal, right, who will <laughs> treat me, you know, like mentor treats Telemachus. Really? Take you under their wing. Because once you have the approval and protection, right, of an older student in that setting, you're golden. Right? You're, you're no longer on your own. Right. It, it reminds you of uh, you know, trying to survive in a prison. Right. You have to kind of... You how, go, how could you have a memory <laughs> of that? <laughs> well, it's not a memory. I mean, all my knowledge of that comes from movies. But you, when you're in prison, you go out and you try to take down the biggest guy that you can, mm-hmm. and, and then thereafter nobody will mess with you because they'll have they'll respect you for that. Yeah. Well, I tried to take down the competition through spelling bees. That was my <laughs> that was my main approach. And as yeah. a, as a sophomore, you know, it worked. But and to meet and to meet girls, I imagine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Spelling bees are a great place. Uh, to impress the ladies. Can we? I think we need to bring this back to Telemachus. Are we off though. course here? <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> so Telemachus, he's got to leave middle school. Yeah, threshold moment. Threshold moment, and he's going to go off. And the plan is he's going to he's going to captain his own ship, and he's going to go and he's going to visit two people who knew his father. Yes. So the late scholar H. J. Rose, Handbook of Greek Literature. Yes. It's dated scholarship. I love it though because it's so readable. Nineteen thirty-four, and it's free. 
So he gives us this nice summary of books two and three. Jeff, can you share some of that with us? I'll read the book two summary. It's it's nice and short and and, and pithy. So Rose writes, acting on her advice, be Athena's advice, Telemachus calls a folk moot and bids the wooers depart. Hold on now. (laughs) He calls a what? He calls a folk moot. A folk moot? Yeah. Is that, uh, what what is a folk moot? Is Tom Brady going to call one of those in the upcoming Super Bowl extravaganza? That sounds like a a trick play? Yeah. I think that's something Brady would do, right? (laughs) I think. First and seven. (laughs) I can see that. I'm going to go with this, Winkle. Hold on. Okay, yeah, yeah. First and seven, time for a folk moot. I think you you pull the folk mood like uh, I think fourth and long, third and fifteen. Yeah, yeah maybe a, so. It's a okay. desperation mood. What right? is a folk mood? It's a gathering. Okay. Yeah. And the person who holds the conch shell gets to speak. Right. That's a Lord of the Flies reference, I believe. I knew you'd get it. I didn't think I had to put my finger on it. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I said it now. <laughs> so he he calls this folk mood. In 1934, people are still saying folk mood. Of course they are. Okay. Right. Right. You went from the speakeasy down to the folk mood. <laughs> You picked up, a, I don't know, a six-pack of bottled milk, and yeah. you were good. Uh, you, for the folk moot? Yes. At the folk moot. Yes. All right. <laughs> so acting on her advice, Telemachus calls a folk moot and bids the wooers depart. They refuse. Telemachus prays for help to the unknown god who had, peer, who had appeared to him the day before. Athena appears, this time in the form of mentor, Ithacusian. Yes, that someone from Ithaca. It's hard to pronounce, huh? It Ithacusian. is. Ithacusian. I wasn't ready for that. Uh, in this shape... Mentor, she borrows a ship for him, collects a crew, and they leave the island together. Yes. Yeah. So off they go now under the protection of Athena, gray-eyed Athena, disguised as the male figure, Mentor. Yeah. And Telemachus is ready to enter high school. I, I wanted to mention, because I don't think we discussed it last time, is that, and this is very important, the suitors are plotting to kill Telemachus. Yes, of yeah, course. Right. And so... Uh, because now that he's old enough, he might pose a real threat. Right. And that's huge. Right, so when when we get down to you know several episodes later, uh, when it, the vengeance is taken on the suitors, that's an important detail to keep in mind. Definitely, yep. because it was not an unprovoked response. Right, uh, they had been plotting his death all along. Book three. Yeah, you want to? I do. Take I want to read a little bit of that summary. from Rose. Book three summary. They uh, mentor, i.e., Athena and Telemachus, arrive at Nestor's city of Pylos on the mainland. Athena disappears in bird form. Nestor makes sacrifice to her, and, as he has himself no news of Odysseus, sends Telemachus on to Lacedaemon, i.e. Sparta, lending him a chariot and one of his sons, Pisistratus, as escort. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, you've been to Pylos, right? No, I have not. You haven't? No. I was all set to Pylos, and that was in... 2015. Did you just use Pylos as a verb? I did. <laughs> okay. English can do that. Yeah. You were about to go pilosing. Yes, yeah. and um, I was with our good friend, Dr. Young Kim. Yeah. That's not a shout out, Young, if you're listening. <laughs> and also our lovely guide, Christiana Dimitra. Yes. We were going to travel south along the road from Olympia and stop off at Pilos, and then she got the news from the Tour Guide Network that the archaeological site at Pilos was closed. Uh, as as often happens. Yes. Yeah, you have to be ready for that kind of thing. With no particular explanation I kind of have the uh, impression that it's just the guards got too cold sitting outside in January. The coffee was done, so yeah. site's closed for the day. Well, I can't imagine I mean, it's in that it's in uh, kind of a far remote corner. It is. It's not a major tourist right. stop, but it's one of those places I've always wanted to go to as well. There, I believe there is there is a so-called kind of palace of Nestor with huge quotes around it. Yes, that's, that's been excavated. Well, it's definitely a Mycenaean palace, right? And it's exactly in the spot where Homer described Nestor as living. So if there was a real Nestor, that's where he would have uh, lived. Yeah. And lots of linear B tablets were found there. 
Oh yeah, yeah, so that's it's a good right. place to go. But we're digressing again. We are. Let's t- well, let's talk about Nestor. Okay, let's do that. Okay, um, how do you feel about Nestor as a character? He's I like the, him. He, he's in the Iliad. Yeah, Gerani and Nestor. He's the guy that always has the long, sententious speech. Yes, we're both faculty members, right? So we can relate to this. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Why say in a few words what you could say in a thousand? Right. So he, yeah, he's exactly. He's famous for kind of going on and on and on, like a. Like a Grateful Dead song live. And he also likes to say, back in my day, right? Does he say that a lot? Yeah, he's kind of like the grumpy old man. Right. In a couple memorable episodes in the Iliad, you know, back in my day, and he was a member, Nestor was, of the Argonaut crew. He was with Jason on the way to collect the Golden Fleece. So he knew uh, what a hero was, and he used to like to compare these young upstart whippersnappers to the men of old. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. My sense of, of Nestor, and I think uh, one of my grad school professors made the argument is that he's he's a rare character in that he's, he's, he's kind of universally beloved. And his only real problem is that he talks too much. He's so annoying. He's so annoying. Yeah. Right. He's garrulous. Yes, exactly. Back in my day. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But it never it never devolves into a kind of get off my lawn kids these days. No, no, no. No, no, no. no. He really wants the next generation to succeed. He just doesn't believe they can. Right, right, right. Another argument that that I came across was is that uh, he's also one of the few Greek leaders who makes it back home without incident. Yes. Um, He's not blown off course. He's not wounded. He's obviously not killed. Respect for old age. You think that's what's driving that? that, Well, I think think you could read... uh, in this passage from the Odyssey, when we first see him, is that he's he's religiously correct. Hmm. He listens to the gods. The first time we see him, he's sacrificing to the gods. Uh, Homer might be suggesting is that Nestor does what he needs to do, and if other figures had done similarly, they might not have had the same problems getting home. Well, the interesting thing about that observation to me is that the morally uncompromised, pious, careful, in other respects, admirable character is also a little bit boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's a little dull and he talks too much. Right. Flanders, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> He's very much the Flanders of, of Homer's world. Yes. Yeah, that's perfect. Right. So we even see when Telemachus uh, on his way back, we'll put a map in the, in the show notes, but if you... If you're going from Pelos to Sparta, you're going kind of you're going across land, and I, I guess it would make sense on your way back from Sparta to Pelos, you'd stop in Pelos yeah, again to refuel. Yeah, to buy refuel. some Slim Jims, maybe a 44 ounce soda, <laughs> uh, um, some, um, some Mountain Dew. Yep, exactly. But uh, Telemachus decides to skip Nestor. On of course, the way back. right? Okay, so that just about wraps up Book Three and the talkative old man Nestor. We got him out of the way. Yes, we did. Are you going to give us your grumpy old man voice? Uh, I might save it till later. All right. Yeah, you did yours. And I, I, it was I, brief, though. It was brief, but I feel like, I don't know, I can't measure up. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, back in my day, back in co- my day. co-hosts could measure up, but <laughs> I guess we'll just leave it there. Yeah. Book four, what do we got? Let's get into it. How about some Greek? I'd you, love you wanna, to. You want to read some Greek, the opening lines? Sure. So the, um, the subscript to book four is ta and lacadaimoni. The stuff that happened in Sparta and Lacedaemon, ta and lacadaimoni. And here are the first few lines. Hoi tixon quailain lacadaimonake toe san. Pros darado matalon menala u kudalamoya. Ton teron dainun tagamon paloisinatesin. Hui et os aid a thugatrasamu monas ho eni oiko. 
Very nice. It's beautiful language. It is a beautiful language. Some someday we'll have to bring in a lyre to pluck along with. Oh them. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let me translate those lines and maybe just a, a couple beyond that to set That'd the scene. That'd be wonderful. Uh, so this is from um, Stanley Lombardo's translation. They came to the hollows of Lacedaemon and drove to Menelaus's palace, which they found filled with guests. Menelaus was hosting a double wedding party for his son and his daughter. He was sending her to wed the son of Achilles, as he had promised long ago in Troy, and now the gods were bringing the marriage to pass. Huh. Now, this is, this is striking. Um, because we have a marriage, a wedding ceremony. Well, first, a double wedding sounds like a nightmare to me. Um, uh, I mean, how much how much cash is Menelaus laying out for oh, this? Oh, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, but beside the point, uh, but a wedding in Sparta. Uh, again, for those who are familiar with the, the larger Trojan saga, it's how the whole thing began. It was at a wedding hosted by Menelaus that Helen was was abducted, or she ran off with with, with Paris and got the whole thing this whole thing going. So um, I love that detail. I love kind of uh, the carefulness of Homer uh, with his story here. It's in some ways it's, I mean, there's a few more lines about the wedding. It, it seems like a throwaway detail. You might think it's a throwaway detail. But it's not. No. It's not. It, can, it, it adds a layer. It adds, adds an echo. It adds an ominousness to it that um, I mean, you, if, you, if you miss it, you miss it. But if you catch it, it just makes the poem that much more interesting mm. and rich. Mm. Yeah. So Telemachus comes in, and he's with Pisistratus, uh, Nestor's son, as his traveling companion. And, and this is a really striking example of, of Xenia, of that guest friendship, that hospitality, which right. um, is a, a key theme, for, I think, for understanding morality in, in the Odyssey. Absolutely. The and, domestic epic of, of eating. Right. You've got to have food there. Right. So uh, exactly. Right. Uh, so Telemachus is he's a wedding crasher here. Right. Uh, I mean, I'll be road tripping, road tripping and wedding crashing, wedding crashing. Right. And you might think that Menelaus would say, you know, get out of here. We got I got not, I got two weddings going on. Right? I'm stressed out as it is. Right. right? You know, <laughs> where are those roses? <laughs> exactly. Right. But he doesn't. But he, he welcomes this guest and uh, both Menelaus and Helen immediately comment upon how much Telemachus, or this young man, they don't know who he is yet, looks like Odysseus. Yes. Right. And why do you think that's important? Well, uh, like we were talking in the last episode, uh, Telemachus's relationship to his father, he, that, that's the, his problem that needs to be solved. You know, everyone has told him that he's Odysseus's son. Um, he's grown up, um, you know, as the, the prince of Ithaca, but he's never known it for himself, right? It doesn't matter how much, how many times his mom tells him these things. He has to learn this for himself. So when he hears from one of his his um, his father's old uh, war buddies that he looks just like him, this is evidence that he needs. Yes, which is why you chose the title of episode 22 last week as When Will Dad Be Home? Exactly. I think that was right on point. Yeah, right. That's a, that's a key element in so many uh, uh, masculine hero journeys, like Campbell's you know, mm-hmm. hero's journey. We'll often talk about that. There might be a quest object, there might be a monster to kill, but the real, the real story is the reconciliation with the father. Yeah. You see it everywhere. Okay, so we need to pause for a moment and thank our wonderful sponsors and let the audience know how they can get some great deals from our sponsors. And after the break, Jeff, what are we talking about? Pharmacon. Pharmacon. Yes. Uh, magic. Is that one of the Transformers? <laughs> Pharmacon Prime. <laughs> no, it's a drug. It's a drug. It? It's a drug. And it's a, it's a powerful uh, tool in the hands of Helen. And what does she do with it? She's going to mix it up. Well, hold on. we got to wait till okay. after. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Let's get to the, <laughs> the leading get to question. The 
Today's episode is brought to you in part by Hackett Publishing. Jeff, what do you like about Hackett? I've used Hackett's translations in lots of my classes. They're attractive, affordable translations, very accessible translations that are close to the, the Greek and the Latin. Also, in, in fine English renderings, I found that scholars and students alike have always enjoyed Hackett's translations. Yeah, they're beautiful and well put together. An independent publisher for decades now. They have offices in Massachusetts and in Indianapolis, right here in the heartland. What I love about them is that they took over the uh, imprint from Focus Publishing, which is which is now out of business, but they have maintained the wonderful Hans Orberg Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata series. Excellent, excellent. And I just love that for teaching Latin yeah, uh, to yeah. kids and adults of all ages. Uh, what can our listeners get from Hackett uh, thanks to Ad Nauseam? Well, if our listeners go to hackettpublishing.com um, and they, they, they queue up the, the books they want to get, uh, they can put into the coupon code box AN2021. That's right, AN2021, and they'll get... They'll get 20% off. Plus free shipping. Free shipping yeah. on any text they order from Hackett Publishing. That's pretty amazing. Check it out, Hackett Publishing, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com. Do it. This episode is also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee, based in Portland, Oregon. Uh, purveyors of fine coffee makers, aesthetically beautiful machines. I believe you have one, don't you, Yes, Dan? I've got the Ratio 8. You, ratio 8. What do you like about it? Oh, it's gorgeous. It sits on my counter like a work of art. It's regal. Very, very durable. I have the feeling that this appliance is going to outlast the house. You know, if there were some kind of a natural cataclysm and the house fell down, yeah. the Ratio 8 would still be sitting there on the counter making great coffee. It actually makes good coffee, too. Oh, it's too. beautiful. Yeah. Yep. There is no hot burner to roast and scorch your brew. It's got a system that sends heated water up through the top of it and down through this fancy Fibonacci showerhead Ooh. down into the craft. Makes delicious coffee. I think, Jeff, if I'm not mistaken, yes. that when Telemachus and Pisistratus arrived in Sparta, book four... Wasn't this being served at the wedding? What was going on there? It was. It was on the. It was on the first table that you came to in, inside the palace. And Menelaus even says something. If I had one of these way back when, there never would have been a Trojan War. That's right. Helen would have stuck around. She never would have left of course me if not. I were serving Ratio Eight, exactly Ratio right. Six coffee. What can our listeners get from Ratio? Thanks well, to Ad Nauseam. If they go to RatioCoffee.com, uh, they can get fifteen percent off the Ratio Six by typing in the coupon code ANCO. Okay, so that's Ratio, R-A-T-I-O, great Latin word, RatioCoffee.com, 15% off the Ratio 6, and the coupon code is? ANCO. Check it out. Do it. Jeff, let's talk about the Moss Method a let's little bit. Let's talk about the Moss Method. What is it? Well, it's a way of learning ancient Greek, either Attic, that is the language of Plato and Aristotle and so forth, or New Testament, Koine, what Mark and Matthew and John and Luke and company were speaking. That sounds great. How would one go about doing this? Well, one should go to mossmethod.com, M-O-S-S method.com. Check out the introductory video I have there, which will tell you how you can enroll in the class and what you're going to get from it. So it's $299 per module, and that gets you 40 video lessons where I go through and I explain the Greek in this Moss reader. It's a very interesting little reader. I explain it thoroughly and carefully. You get assignments, you get quizzes and exams. Who doesn't love an exam? We all love exams. Right. Yeah. Sounds great. Do you have any deals coming up for students? Yes, we're going to run a Valentine's Day special. That sounds wonderful. What will that entail? Well, students can get $50 off Module 1 or 75 off Modules 1 and 2 combined. So that sounds great. So they go to mossmethod.com. 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 
So, Jeff, as we get back into book four now, we get to see on display the very unusual reunion of Menelaus and Helen. Yeah. They're, it, back, they're back together, but the marriage is rocky. Right. It's reunited, but it doesn't feel so good. Right. Right? So, um, yeah, that's, I think that's probably my favorite part about this book. It's this, it's this unsettling weirdness that is uh, so palpable between, um, between these two. Right. So let's think about their stories up to this point. Married after Menelaus won the contest from the other suitors mm-hmm. in order to get Helen's hand. But then Helen is spirited off by Paris to Troy. Nine years later, right, in the ninth year of the war is the setting for the Iliad. They finally meet up once again, and Menelaus takes her back. They journey through Egypt. There's a detour. Mm-hmm. But now they're back together in Sparta. And how are things looking? Things are not looking good. Homer he lays this out so wonderfully, and I, I think it it it's it causes the the reader to to think about what is it going to be like when Odysseus and Penelope get back together, right? What's waiting down the line? Is it going to be a um, another kind of strange tension filled relationship like this? I mean, Odysseus and Penelope have been apart for even longer. Yes, seventeen, eighteen years. Right. This again, it's a a possible foreshadowing of what's coming next. And what kind of a person is Helen? That's another really interesting element about this book because Homer reveals her in some surprising ways. Yes. So we, we see her, we mentioned before the break, uh, this pharmacon. Right. right. So she's, she uses this drug. Um, and I think we should read a little bit here. Okay. She uses drug to, well, let, let's read it and we can talk about possibly what she's up to here. Okay. Do you want to read that? Yes. Yeah, so this is the Lombardo translation. This is long about line 230. But Helen, child of Zeus, had other ideas. She threw a drug into the wine bowl they were drinking from, a drug that stilled all pain, quieted all anger, and brought forgetfulness of every ill. Whoever drank wine laced with this drug would not be sad or shed a tear that day, not even if his own father and mother should lie there dead, or if someone killed his brother or son before his eyes. Helen had gotten this potent, cunning drug from Polydamna, the wife of Thon, a woman in Egypt where the land proliferates with all sorts of drugs, many beneficial, many poisonous. Men there know more about medicines than any other people on earth, for they are of the race of Paeon the healer. When Helen had slipped the drug into the wine, she ordered another round to be poured, and then she turned to the company and said... That's that's incredible. In, one, uh, in rereading this this book for in preparation for this episode, I'd forgotten that detail about this this drug is so powerful that your loved ones could be killed in front of you, and you wouldn't shed a tear. That's really disturbing, isn't it? It's really disturbing, but unhuman. It, uh, inhumans. It, so it raises questions about you know, who is Helen? Right. What ex- what exactly is she? Well, a lot of ink has been spilled on this subject by scholars, and. There's no real clear consensus on how to understand or interpret Helen. What are some of the ideas, though? Well, she's obviously the daughter of Zeus, Mm -hmm. and she was hatched from an egg. You know the story. Zeus slept with uh, Helen's mother, Leda, in the form of a swan. Mm -hmm. Leda then laid two eggs. In one egg were Helen and Castor. In the other egg, uh, with a human father, were Clytemnestra and Pollux. That's right. So she's the daughter of Zeus, and she seems to have a quasi-divine sort of character. And she's often been called a witch, or maybe even a goddess. Two really interesting books on this topic. One is by a fellow named Norman Austin, uh, Helen of Troy and Her Shameless Phantom. That's from 1994. You know the story of the phantom that um, 
Helen never actually went to Troy. Oh, I have heard about that, but, I, but I'm forgetting the details of how that how Well, that it's goes. part of the epic cycle after Homer. There was an alternative ending or an alternative story here that Helen really didn't go with Paris, but she was spirited off to Egypt, and that's where she stayed. In bodily form, there was just a ghost haunting the plains of Troy, and everyone was deceived. There's a few kind of side legends like that Greek myth. Another one of, of Iphigenia wasn't actually sacrificed, right. and she was spirited away by Artemis. Saved right. at the last moment. Right. Homer mentions you know, going to Egypt here, and this, this, this notion of Egypt as being this land of mysticism and magic. That's yeah, exotic. Right. It still has that. It still has kind of that kind of hold on culture today, right? And how many you know, history uh, channel documentaries are, are right. on, on Egypt, and in the, in the, the soundtrack is always, Right. right, you know, it's it's it's, it's all, it, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's because of its great antiquity, right? Yeah. So I mean, so the Greeks themselves they were you know, puzzled by what Egypt was all about, and so this association with with you know secret knowledge and magic goes way, way, way back. And so this, it's even Homer here suggests that Helen learned this stuff in Egypt. Yes, that's where you're going to go to train to be a, a, a sorceress. That's right. Or just a pharmacist. Or just a pharmacist. So right. the word that's used here is ta pharmacon. It's where we get the word pharmacy, obviously. And it means a drug. And of course, it's also used uh, throughout the Iliad and the Odyssey as a metaphor or analogy for the power of speech. Oh, yeah. And yeah, Gorgias, yeah. the famous sophist Gorgias, he picks up on this in a little speech he wrote in defense of Helen, his praise of Helen. That'll be another episode. But the point of, of Gorgias's uh, argument there is that Helen couldn't resist uh, going with Paris because Aphrodite overwhelmed her. Mm. And speech is like a drug. Speech has that same kind of influence. So it's very interesting that after Helen puts this uh, Mickey into their drinks, immediately after she begins giving this speech about the kinds of things that happened at Troy. All right. So I think you could make the argument that Helen mixes these drugs into these drinks because of what immediately follows. And what comes next are um, both Helen and Menelaus give versions of the Trojan horse story. What happened there within the walls. Yes, exactly right. And Helen starts first, and she gives this really, really interesting personal account of what she saw and what she encountered as Odysseus was preparing to to sack the sack the city with this this very famous trick. So let me just read a little bit. That'd be great. Little, yeah. This is Lombardo again? Yes. Right. So she uh, Helen suggests let's let's tell stories. That's what, that's what we do at parties. You know, who knows what's happening with a wedding down the hall, right? Uh, and she says I'll start you off. I couldn't begin to tell you all that Odysseus endured and accomplished, but listen to what the hero did once in the land of Troy where the Achaeans suffered. First he beat himself up, gave himself some nasty bruises, then put on a cheap cloak so that he looked like a slave, and in this disguise, he entered the wide streets of the enemy city. He looked like a beggar, far from what he was back in the Greek camp, and fooled everyone when he entered Troy. I alone recognized him in, the, in his disguise and questioned him, but he cleverly put me off. It was only after I had bathed him and rubbed him down with oil and clothed him and had sworn a great oath not to tell the Trojans who he really was until he got back to the ships that he told me at last what the Achaeans planned." Now, this is extraordinary. So, so Helen, let me get this straight. Yeah. Helen is telling Menelaus and Telemachus and Pisistratus that while she was in Troy, Odysseus came in in disguise in mm -hmm. order to work his magic and ruin the city. She was the only one who recognized yes. him. Yes. 
Is it's, this plausible? It, it's not. It, it really isn't. It's, it, and it's, I mean, it's, it's so over the top. I mean, not only that, but she gives Odysseus a massage. Right. And um, provides she, him with a new set of clothes. New set of clothes. And actually, and gets Odysseus to tell her uh, what he has planned. Right. Right. I mean, is this, None of which is believable, right? He, no. he wouldn't do this. And it's a nice contrast, of course. Of course, Virgil has this in mind, right? Book two of the Aeneid. Yeah. When Aeneas encounters Helen, what does he want to do? Um, he, she wants to uh, lure the Greeks out. You mean she wants to get them to come out of the horse? That's right. And 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 not only that, Aeneas wants to to kill Helen. He's filled with rage because she, dog faced, is the cause of the war. Right. But Odysseus, in this, in Helen's version, he's he's having a day at the spa <laughs> with Helen. With Helen. So to to pull this off without you know to prevent people just laughing in her face in this moment, you need some sort of powerful pharmacon to mix into the drinks, right? So the reason that she can get away with this this story, which stretches all limits of plausibility, is she drugs her audience into a stupor. Hmm. And Menelaus has a response then too, doesn't he? Does. he? Right, and he's he's um he's strikingly lucid. Yes. Uh, in his response. Um, but uh, you want to give us a little bit of that? Yes. And Menelaus, the red-haired king, Stanley Lombardo translation, says, A very good story, my wife, and well told. By now I have come to know the minds of many heroes and have traveled far and wide, but I have never laid eyes on anyone who had an enduring heart like Odysseus. Listen to what he did in the wooden horse, where all we Argive chiefs sat waiting to bring slaughter and death to the Trojans. You came there then with godlike Deiphobus. Some god who favored the Trojans must have lured you on. Now, Deiphobus, Jeff, this is her third husband, isn't it? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Th- this is not Menelaus. It's not even Paris. This is her third husband. Yeah. It doesn't really make Helen look all that good, but Menelaus is under the influence as he recounts this story. Yeah. To continue, three times you circled our hollow hiding place, feeling it with your hands, that is, the, the horse. And you called out the names of all the Argive leaders, making your voice sound like each of our wives in turn. Now, this is, I'm editorializing here. This is not translation. This is crazy. This is. How, how could Helen possibly pull off this massive feat of ventriloquism? Right. She not only knows who's in the horse, but she knows uh, Frank Caliendo style, <laughs> how to imitate the voices of each of their wives. Right. So, I, I, again, a, a suggestion, she's some kind of sorceress. Yeah, she's like Medea or Circe. Yes. The, the real witch in the Odyssey is Circe, but here we get a, a little foretaste of what Helen can do. Exactly. To continue... Diomedes and I, sitting in the middle with Odysseus, heard you calling and couldn't take it. We were frantic to come out or answer you from inside. But Odysseus held us back and stopped us. Then everyone else stayed quiet also, except for Anticlus, who wanted to answer you. But Odysseus saved us all by clamping his strong hands over Anticlus's mouth and holding them there until Athena led you off. So what do you think here? Uh... In, uh, in Vino Veritas? I guess so. Yeah. I, I'm not sure what Menelaus... I don't know which of them, if either, is telling the truth yeah. here to Telemachus. So he's he's drugged up. Um, Helen clearly has an ulterior motive of, of wanting to portray herself in a particular kind of way. Yes. It's, she wants to portray herself as fully on the Greek side. Yeah. The heroine. And she wants to patch up her marriage, I guess. And so as she talks about the events of the past, she's going to revise them dramatically for Menelaus' sake. Yeah, and it raises all these issues we were um, talking about in the previous episode is, who do you believe? Right. Um, um, Odysseus is, as the trickster, kind of telling stories and making up identities. He's not the only one doing this. So there's a slipperiness to the 
the the truth of the narrative in the Odyssey that you you don't encounter in the same way in the Iliad. So we see then that things aren't really peaceful between Menelaus and Helen. No. And even under the influence of this divine potion that the witch-like Helen administers, there's still a lot of trouble in this marriage. That's right. It's not good. It's unsettling. And um, again, it raises these questions about what's in store for Odysseus. Yes. Their love is built on a solid foundation of deceit. Yes. And betrayal. Mm -hmm. And so with Penelope and Odysseus, this invites the reader to think, where is Odysseus going to be with Penelope when he returns? Right. Happy reception, faithful wife, or, or what? Right. It also reminds me of the, the first time we see we hear Zeus speaking uh, when he washes his hands or he, uh, of mortals. Um, he uses this example of Aegisthus and Clytemnestra and Agamemnon. There too, another troubled marriage, which um, in some ways ends even worse. Agamemnon's murder. Yeah, it ends in murder. Right. So we've got three different pictures here, right? You've got the murderous picture of Agamemnon going home to Mycenae and being killed by Clytemnestra. Yep. You've got the picture of Menelaus and Helen together but very unhappily so, what's going to happen to Penelope and Odysseus? That's exactly right. All right, but Telemachus didn't come here, at least on on the face of things, to hear stories from bickering spouses. He came to learn something about his his father, and he does learn something about his father. And Um, this is how the plot is advanced in this book. Exactly. So how does this happen in, in this book? So Menelaus, near the end of the book four, Indeed, tells Telemachus that yes, uh, he learned that Odysseus is held captive by Calypso. But how does this how does this come about? You want to tell us? Well, it's a flashback and a flashback and a flashback kind of a thing, and that's what makes it so interesting to me. It's very layered and complicated. Menelaus informs Telemachus. We have to remember Menelaus is still under the influence of this mind-altering potion. Menelaus informs Telemachus that Proteus, Proteus is a sea god in Egypt. Proteus has revealed that Odysseus, everyone with us still, (laughs) is being held captive by Calypso. That's right. And this happens through a very interesting incident that takes place along the seashore. Jeff, can you read a little bit of that incident for our listeners, please? Right. So Menelaus, he encounters this this goddess on the seashore, Edothea. His name means, looks like a goddess. And she is a daughter of Proteus. And he asks her um, how he might get home. And uh, back to the Lombardo translation. And the shining goddess answered me, Well, all right, stranger, since you ask. This is the haunt of an unerring immortal, Egyptian Proteus, the old man of the sea who serves Poseidon and knows all the deeps. They say he's my father. If you can somehow catch him in ambush here, he will tell you the route and the distance, too, of your journey home over the teeming sea. And he will tell you, prince, if you so wish, what has been done in your house for better or worse while you have been gone on your long campaign. So then Menelaus decides to take her advice, and he asks her, what exactly do I need to do? How can I make this work? And she responds, I'll tell you exactly what you need to know. When the sun is at high noon, the unerring old man of the sea comes from the salt water. Hidden in dark ripples, the west wind stirs up, and then lies down to sleep in the scalloped caves. All around him, seals, the brine spirits brood, sleep in a herd. They come out of the gray water with breath as fetid as the depths of the sea. Seal breath, right? Yeah. You don't want that. No, that's no good. No. I will lead you there at break of day and lay you in a row, you and three comrades, chosen by you as the best on your ship. Now I'll tell you all the old man's wiles. First, he will go over the seals and count them. Is he going to check their breath too? 
I think he's just kind of obsessive compulsive. Is there some he's a kind seal of seal counter? Okay, is there some kind of aquatic listerine that could fix this problem? <laughs> right. And when he has counted them off by fives, he will lie down like a shepherd among them. As soon as you see him lying down to rest, screw up your courage to the sticking point and pin him down. No matter how he struggles and tries to escape, he will try everything and turn into everything that moves on the earth and into water also and a burning flame. Just hang on and grip him all the more tightly. When he finally speaks to you of his own free will in the shape you saw him, saw him in when he lay down to rest, then ease off, hero, and let the old man go. I'm editorializing here, but is this so that... Uh, Proteus doesn't check Menelaus's breath to see how fetid it might be. Anyway, to conclude. Could very well be. And ask him which of the gods is angry with you and how you can sail home over the teeming sea. So Menelaus takes your advice. Yeah. We then get a reiteration basically of what the goddess just told him. He does that. He does that. He successfully wrestles this this strange creature. Shapeshifter. Shapeshifter to the ground. And it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, a genie. You know, you get uh, you, uh, you 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 go through the crucible and you get your three wishes. Right. And so um, it's, it struck me in, in kind of reading this is Menelaus has a similar kind of journey as Odysseus does. Yes, less successful though because he's with Helen. Right, but there again is the is kind of that you know foreshadowing. What's, yeah. what's going to happen here? The contrast. And um, he does. He successfully wrestles Proteus, and he gets the information that he wants. And here's where we learn what happened: that Agamemnon was murdered upon his arrival, um, and uh, he has information that Telemachus wants to hear, and he tells him that Proteus informs him that Odysseus is being held. Uh, by Calypso on her island. So first of all, he's alive. He's alive. Which is big information. It's huge. It's huge. Again, this, again, this is something that Athena could have simply told Telemachus. Yes, but that would have short-circuited Telemachus's own road-tripping first day of high school experience. Exactly right. And we would never have gotten book four. No. Right. Um, but Odysseus with Calypso, and that is exactly where book five begins. So that's where we're headed next week, right, that's right. Michael? Yep, we're going to see we're going to see Odysseus with Calypso, how he gets off that island, and um, about his time with the Phaeacians. So books five through eight, five is through eight, where we're going next. Yep, Nausicaa, the Phaeacian princess, and we're finally going to meet the man after whom the epic was named. At last, he hasn't appeared. That's right. All right, so I think we've made a case for book four. Absolutely. Uh, for it, its importance and its centrality to the Odyssey. Definitely. Right? So, and these are themes we're going to explore in, in later episodes. But we got to get out of here. we got to get out of the vomitorium. Is, because, there, is there some pressure on us? Yeah, there's someone banging at the door. It's, I think it's the Balsa Wood Club. The Balsa Wood Club. Yeah, I don't know what they do. they got Gorilla Glue. Yeah, giant tubs of glue they're going to roll in here. Yeah, there's going to be some shaving and sanding. Okay. Uh, all I know, it's a mess when they're done. All right, so we got to yield the space to them. <laughs> we do. All right. Let's, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Okay, so, so subscribers, yes. uh, leave a review if you could for your favorite podcast. Leave it at uh, the Apple iTunes site or anywhere else where you listen. Yeah, that really helps uh, our visit ability and we love to read it yep. yes we love to receive communications from you how, how can uh, our loyal listeners get in touch with us well if you got questions comments ideas you can send them to uh to it, date insults insults well, well yeah we'll take insults okay yeah we got thick skin uh you can send them to dave at dave at ad uh don't forget the v or to me at jeff at ad and we got something special coming up for the 25th episode, The Silver, don't we? That's right. We're going to read listener comments on air. We're going to read a bunch of them and interact with them. That's We're right. We're going to read some of the bad ones. We're going to read some of the glowing ones. Yeah. So here's your chance. Send us those listener comments in anticipation of episode 25. Yeah. We're going to read them live. Can't wait. All right. So uh, 
But Dave, I think, believe you have our gustatory send-off today. I do, but we need to say thank you to our audio engineer of, first. Of course, Mishka. Mishka, thank you so much for the mixing and editing and making us sound much better than we do in real life. That's right. Without Mishka, there's no podcast. No. So next week, Homer's Odyssey, part three, books five through eight, and here is the gustatory parting shot. This one's not quite as funny. It's a little more cerebral, but I love the source. This comes from Plato. Knowledge is the food of the soul. Perfect. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>